Dr. Matthew Castro here at Central Church in Kyreville, Tennessee. I'm the adult ministries pastor. You are listening to the Church and Politics Equip class. It meets on Wednesday night at 6.15 p.m. in room 235. You are listening to Lesson 6, Politics of the New Covenant. And we are going to jump in. Uh, remember that Castro has been recording each of these sessions, and so uh, he's uploaded them to his uh, podcast site. So you can go there if you miss a week and listen to them, um, or just go back and hear uh, weeks that you've missed in the past, or just re-listen to, to Castro. So, uh, so take advantage of that. I think that's a, a helpful tool. And tonight, I got to, I've got to give you a little bit of a... Um, a, um, a warning. Uh, we're talking about the church and politics in the new covenant. That's the, the aim for tonight. <clears throat> and so what that means is we're going to spend a whole lot of time talking about the new covenant and specifically the, the development of the new covenant throughout the Old Testament as it culminates in the person of Christ in, in uh, the New Testament. And so that's where we're going to spend the majority of our time um, because of that, we're not going to touch on uh, stuff that's in the political sphere here in the U.S. or around the world per se, uh, but what we are going to do and where this intersects this theme of church and politics is in beginning to understand what the Bible presents to us as a way of life for the people of the new covenant. Does that make sense? So in other words, how then should we live? In light of being people of the new covenant... How should we live? How should our time be prioritized? Uh, our, how should our motivations be prioritized? How should our, even our um, use of the resources the Lord's given us be prioritized in light of the new covenant? That's where we're going tonight, okay? That's the aim. So let's do this. Uh, at the top of your sheet, you see a couple quotes. I've pulled these out of the book that Castro uh, has been going through. I think they're helpful for us in setting the stage for tonight. This first one says, God asks Adam and Eve to represent his just and righteous rule. Let's pause there. As you hear that line, God asks Adam and Eve to represent his just and righteous rule. When you think scripturally, what does that take you back to? When do you see the Lord in Scripture asking Adam and Eve to represent his just and righteous rule? Garden of Eden. Exactly. Yeah, the Garden of Eden. He makes man in his own what? Image, Image and likeness. likeness. Right? Makes man in his own image and likeness. And now the idea here is what God is doing is putting on earth representatives people who can represent his rule uh, over all of his creation. Now, um, likeness represents the, the relationship between the copy and the original. That is, it represents the relationship between Adam and Eve as created in the image of God, their relationship to God as the one um, whose image they bear. Now, um, image represents the relationship between Adam and Eve to all of creation as they model through their way of life what Yahweh is like. Does that make sense? That's a helpful starting point for us tonight as we think about God coming to Adam and Eve, placing them on this earth as representatives, meant to, to image to all the world 
who the Lord is and what he's like. And they were to do that through their obedience to his commands. Uh, what were his commands? Yeah, that was one of them. Um, uh, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What else did he tell them to do? Take care of the garden. They were gardeners. Take care of the garden. Um, one of the things that we're going to see tonight is through the prophecy of Isaiah, he uses garden imagery to depict the overturning of the curse and the restoration of God's right order. Um, yeah, he, he tells them, tend the garden. Keep it, work it. He tells them to be what? Be fruitful. Multiply. Subdue the earth. Have dominion over it. That, that is, uh, the Lord's image on the earth ought to expand. Be expanding, right? Beyond the boundaries of the garden. God asks Adam and Eve to represent his just and righteous rule to act as citizens or ruled rulers. They do not. God therefore grants a series of what? Of covenants to establish Israel as his model body politic, but they mimic the nations, worship the Baals and Ashtaroths, neglect God's law, and so break his covenant. That is the story of the Old Testament, if you were to summarize it in one to two, three sentences. Tonight, specifically, as we take a look at the new covenant, which is the covenant that all the former covenants um, anticipated and looked to, we're going to see that the new covenant establishes a model body politic. That's a hard phrase to say. A nation of righteous citizens for God by solving the self-enthronement and self-justification problems. Pause. What is that? Self-enthronement and self-justification Think specifically in the context of Adam and Eve in the garden. What might that be? They, they usurped God's rule. They usurped God's rule? Yeah. Um, in essence, what they were trying to do as they disobeyed God's command was to place themselves on the throne of their life um, to be God for themselves, right? Meaning they're... Um, attempting to strip God of his rule and to place themselves in the place of rule, right? Um, They're putting themselves on the throne of the universe. But then beyond that, when the Lord comes to the garden and begins asking some questions, what happens? They place blame on everybody else. They place blame anywhere else that they can, right? The Lord comes to, uh, to Adam and says what? Well, yeah, that's what Adam says, yeah. The woman you gave me, um, that woman you gave me, she gave this to me and I ate. Now, was Adam there? Was he present through the entire conversation between Eve and the serpent? We do know, yeah. Yeah, Scripture specifies that he was right there. Um, So he overhears this entire ordeal. It's not as if she tricked him and he was unaware of their conversation and she just hands him a nice shiny apple. He was aware. Um, And he says, that woman you gave me. And then what did Eve do? She pointed to the serpent. Now, here's something interesting that I'm just going to toss out here. 
And let this be maybe like a, a pebble in your shoe for the next couple weeks just to, to think about. Um, there are people who suppose that the first sin of, uh, here, make sure you grab some of these sheets, that the, um, this moment of the fall in the garden um, was not the first moment of Adam and Eve's sin, but rather it was the culmination of a, uh, a sinful trajectory that terminated right there in that act to, to directly disobey the Lord and accept rule from the serpent, right? Um, why? Miss Mary Kay, you said it earlier. Um, Adam and Eve were commanded to do what in the garden? To rule it, to work it, to keep it, to represent God's rule in it. Um, they were ruled rulers. I really like that phrase. They were ruled rulers. Um, that is not mine. That is Jonathan Lehman's. Then they became ruling ruled rulers. We'll see how far we can push that. Um, <laughs> so real quick, just a D date, just a tiny Yeah. But wouldn't, this is from Ford, wouldn't the first sin have been the sin of Satan falling from heaven? Um, yes, I specifically mean first sin in terms of Adam and Eve's sin toward the Lord. Um, that this moment where they take and eat this fruit is the, that's the, the final point of this trajectory that was already set forth. Why? Because as this serpent comes and begins to speak to Eve, um, before he even opened his mouth, he should have been slain. That's the key. He should have been what? Slain. As this, this serpent, this embodiment of evil, invades the Lord's garden, it was Adam's job to slay it. And he didn't. Did Adam know? I mean, he, he might have looked like just an innocent being to Adam. Yeah, he's not. Says that he's not. Craftier than any other beast of the field. Um, Adam would have been well aware. Um, he wasn't tricked into sin. Um, furthermore, you get the issue that it was Adam's role for himself, but also for his wife and family, to, um, to uphold God's word. And one of the things you notice is that as... Adam and Eve begin discussing with the serpent, and the serpent begins to throw out God's word to them. Did God really say? One of the first things you notice is Adam and Eve do what? Specifically Eve, um, she, she twists. It's not just that the serpent twists God's word. Eve um, so will subtracts. Eve subtracts from God's word. And Adam holds no accountability. Well, she said that God told them couldn't touch it, but she also says, um, we will not die, not surely die. That's the emphasis that's in the original command. You will surely die. Um, and she subtracts it. Um, let that be just a pebble in your shoe to think about the trajectory that even things as, as simple as, um, misrepresenting God's word, that the trajectory that sets you out on. Um, and that, that's what we see in the garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Another thing we see all the time today in, in politics is um, the blame. Because a, a leader gets account, held accountable. I think about when that big balloon was flying over. And I'm not going to say what leaders, but gets a, a held accountable for it. And, well, so-and-so did this. And I'm like, well, yeah, but you're in position now, whoever you are. You know? But, I mean, it's it, it was almost astounding to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Let me finish this, uh, 
this sentence. We ended with the self-enthronement, self-justification. Um, the new covenant does this through God's what sort of work? Regenerating and forgiving work as well as his atoning work. Now, when we think about the new covenant, your mind probably immediately goes where? Even as I say those words, new covenant, your mind is going to go to Christ. And that's where it ought to go. You remember the moment where in the upper room with the disciples, he is breaking bread and passing this cup. Luke 22, uh, this is where we get Jesus' words to the disciples in this moment uh, where he specifically mentions this new covenant. He took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the what? The new covenant. The new covenant in my blood. Now, what we're going to do tonight is to outline through Scripture uh, what the nature of this new covenant is. Uh, But one of my hopes for you is that as we spend time doing this, you're going to begin to see the new covenant not as a New Testament development, but something that was set out from the earliest days in Genesis that you can trace through the entire Old Testament, uh, beginning in the law, through the prophets, through the writings, which culminates in the person of Christ. That's the thread that hangs this entire um, one single work together, um, that new covenant that the Lord is going to effect, which is going to accomplish the redemption of his people uh, and the consummation of his kingdom. That's what we're going to do tonight. Um, So let's do this. Let's begin with the Old Testament background for the new covenant. Go to Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15. Now this is what's called, the, the, this verse is called the first gospel. Genesis 3.15. This is in the context of when uh, the Lord comes and he begins to give out curses um, And announcing all of these devastating effects on the land and on Adam and Eve on account of what they've done. But he first comes to the serpent and delivers out these covenant curses. And this is what the Lord says to the serpent. Actually, let's start in verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And we've already established that like Adam, she cast a blame. The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, what are you? Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Between your offspring and her offspring. Pause. What do we notice in verse 15 alone? That there's going to be enmity between the serpent and the woman. Um, That's strife. But we also learn that in the very next line, 
the serpent has offspring. And that Eve has offspring. And that there's likewise going to be enmity between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of Eve. Now, offspring, this word in, the, in, in Hebrew, it's, it's the word seed. And now seed is what's called a collective noun. This isn't English class, but this will be helpful, I promise. So hang in there with me. It's a collective noun. If I look out the window and I see, um, I see uh, three deer, it would sound weird to you if I said, hey, look, there are three deers outside, right? Why? Because deer is a collective noun. That means that whether there are, uh, are plural reference or a singular referent, you're always going to use the singular construct in grammar. It's deer. Well, it's the same with seed. It could be plural or it could be singular, but you're always going to see that one word show up in, the, in what appears to be singular, seed. Now, th- this is important because what we've got to do throughout the entire Old Testament is to discern the identity of this offspring of Eve. We're going to do the same thing in the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant. We've got to figure out who this seed is. Is it many or is it one? What you can do as you're trying to discern the referent for a collective noun is look to the pronouns. Very next line begins with what? And he he (laughs) shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I have seen the seed capitalized too. There are some Bibles that capitalize the seed there. Um, Right. That means what we see from the very beginning is there is one individual seed who's being anticipated, who is going to be struck in the heel, but who is going to crush the head of the serpent. That's what we see. Now, the the rest of the Old Testament is going to clarify for you who this seed is, okay? But what we've got to understand is as you get to the New Covenant specifically, and even the New Testament, um, what we're going to be able to do is to trace Jesus and uh, hope in His coming to this moment here in Genesis 3.15. That's why this is called the first gospel. All right. Let's go to, um, what's the next one? Genesis 12. Genesis 12. This is where the Lord comes in covenants with Abram. Starting verses 1 through 3. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation And I will what? Bless you. you, And I will make your name great so that you will what? I'm going to bless you that you may be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Keep going. The Lord continues to interact with Abram, changes his name to Abraham, comes in in verse 15 or chapter 15 and 17 and ratifies his covenant. But we see it depicted in its final form in Genesis 22. Go to Genesis 22, starting verse 15. 
This is right on the heels of the sacrifice of Isaac. Abraham takes Isaac up on top of Mount Moriah. Um, There he was intent on sacrificing his son at the Lord's command. But God provides a substitute in the form of what? A ram. And now we see the Lord um, coming to Abraham after this moment. Angel of the Lord called out to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely what? Bless you you, and I will surely multiply your what? Some, does yours say seed? Some say offspring, some say seed. Very good. I will surely multiply your offspring, your seed, as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of pause. We're trying to determine the, the identity of this offspring that we were first told about in Genesis 3. Now we, we read again of this promise of offspring in Genesis 12, Genesis 22. If I'm to ask you now, who is in view here? Who does this offspring in Genesis 22 become? Jesus. Becomes Jesus. Now, this is why this is going to be so important and why we're spending so much time on this from the beginning. Because this is the thread we have to trace. Um, the initial instinct is to call this offspring who? Israel. The initial instinct is to call this seed Israel. Why? Because we know Israel comes from the people of, uh, uh, from Abraham's line, right? Okay, let's just take a look at this word. First mention, your offspring. Again, it's a, it's a collective noun. In the Hebrew, it's just, it's singular and it's masculine, offspring. But, this offspring will be multiplied as the stars of heaven and the sand on the seashore. Does that sound like one or does that sound like many? Well, it sounds like many. But then we get to this next use. Your offspring shall possess the gate of what? What's that possessive pronoun? His. Some of your Bibles may say there. Some of yours may say there. Um, uh, grammatically, it's singular masculine. You probably have a note in your Bible that, that says... There or his at the bottom. But in the actual text, it's singular masculine. They insert there, because this is a, an interpretation um, in this chapter. Uh, even translation is a theological enterprise. It's an interpretive enterprise. Because it seems like many are in view. But what I want to argue tonight for you is that Jesus is the offspring in view. Well, in what sense is Jesus multiplied? In what sense does Jesus have seed? His followers. Because, like, you know, Israel is going to be the one that we're going to come to, to be the example. That's if Israel's in view here. My argument is they're not. Jesus is. Now, I say that. um, That may be confusing for you. That may sound different than what you've heard before. Um, Go to Galatians 3. I'm going to show you where I get this. 
Galatians 3. When you want to learn how to interpret Scripture, the best thing you can do is look at how the New Testament authors interpret the Old Testament. Galatians 3, verse 16. Now the promises were made to who? To Abraham and to his seed or offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to what? One. And to your offspring, who is Christ. That means as Paul is reading Genesis 12 to 22, and hoping in this offspring who's going to come from Abraham, he's not seeing Israel as the offspring that is going to bring about his redemption. Instead, he sees who? Jesus. That's, ex- that's, ex- that's explicit. Who is Christ? Back to Genesis 22. Verse 18. That was Galatians 3.16, if you're looking for it. Back to Genesis 22. Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. That is, in Jesus, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. That references back to the original promise to Abram. Do you see that? Okay, meaning now, from the beginning of Genesis, who is being exalted? This one individual seed who's going to come from Eve, who's going to come from Abraham, through whom all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. We see that up to this point? Okay. All right, let's go to uh, Deuteronomy 6. This is in the context of the Mosaic Covenant. Deuteronomy is the the second giving of the law. The whole thing can be summarized. What's that? Deuteronomy 6. This is going to be a lot of Old Testament here in the beginning, so uh, bear with me. Deuteronomy 6. Jesus himself said the whole of the law is summarized in this command. Deuteronomy 6. Um, starting in verse 4. This is it. It's what's called the Shema. Hear, O Israel. And that word here in, in Hebrew is Shema. That's where the, the term comes from. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is what? One. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. This is the sum of the law for God's people, Israel. Now, the rest of Deuteronomy is going to record that they were continually unhearing, not listening. Uh, Moses, his his favorite example to give to depict the people of Israel, um, his people in this day is um, stubborn, stiff-necked, unhearing, having eyes that don't see, ears that don't hear, hearts that don't understand. Now, this is significant because what it comes from is it comes from the golden calf event. You remember when Moses is up on the mount and he's speaking with the Lord and the Lord tells him, you better go back down because your people who you saved from Israel have created this golden calf and they're worshiping it. You remember this moment? 
They go back down. Moses goes back down, sees these people worshiping this golden calf. And it's after that moment where the Lord begins to call Israel stiff-necked, having eyes that don't see, ears that don't hear. The, the, The symbolism there is they're looking a lot less like the one in whose image they were created in the beginning, God, and looking a whole lot more like this idol that they're worshiping. This golden calf that has eyes, but that don't see, ears, but that don't hear, a heart that doesn't understand, and a neck, but that can't turn one way or the other. That's the idea. Sounds a lot like a snake, snake too, yeah. (laughs) Interesting. Um, In fact, yeah, you'll see uh, frequently the evil kings depicted as serpent creatures. Pharaoh is depicted as a serpent. Um, Yeah, it's this acknowledgement in Scripture that as you begin to um, give your allegiance to Satan rather than to the Lord, you become like him. Jesus even tells the Pharisees, um, you are of your father who? The devil. devil. And I knew it because you looked like it. That's the idea. Deuteronomy 6, the sum of the law is this. Here, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You should love him with your all. Um, Go to Deuteronomy 29. Something that's incredibly important. I think the sense that we get often is that as we trace through God's dealings with people in the Old Testament, that he gave them commands that they, that they simply couldn't keep. And so he, he kept having to redirect his attention, um, recreate some new sort of salvation plan because they keep messing up the one he initially gave them, his initial means of salvation. Are you with me? Um, what I want you to see tonight is that that's not the case. Deuteronomy 29, starting in verse 2, Moses summons all the pe- people of Israel to himself and says, you have seen... All that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, to all his servants, and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not what? The Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. That's to say then that It was impossible for the people of Israel to keep the Mosaic Covenant. You see that? To this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand, eyes to see, or ears to hear. Turn one page, or at least for me, Deuteronomy 30. Maybe yours is on the same page. The reason that the Lord did not, in the context of the Mosaic Covenant, give them a heart to understand, ears to hear, or eyes to see, was because He wanted to fix their eyes, not on His ten words that He delivered to them at Sinai, or the new tablets that He wrote with His finger. Instead, He wanted to fix their eyes on one person who was going to come. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. A day is coming... When the Lord your God will what? Circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. 
In other words, if we're to summarize the story of Deuteronomy, it's this command here. The Lord our God is one. Love him with your all. Well, Israel, I didn't give you the ability to do that. Why? Because I wanted to cast all of your dependence on one that I am going to send you. One who is going to circumcise your hearts so that you will love the Lord with your all. Meaning then it can't be done through the law. It can only be done through this offspring. Earlier in in Deuteronomy, the way that Moses talks about it, he tells the people, the Lord's going to raise up a prophet like me from among you. And it's to him that you shall, what? Anybody remember? Listen. The whole of Deuteronomy is characterized by they're commanded to listen, but they can't do it because God didn't give them ears to hear. But one's going to come to whom they will listen. Why? Because the Lord's going to circumcise their hearts so that they can hear him and love him. Do we see that? Do we feel like we have a good grasp on that? Yes. I'm going to take that as a yes. <laughs> All right, um, let's do this. Go to, you can check out David on your own um, if you're interested later this week. Uh, let's go ahead and move to the promise of the new covenant. This comes on the heels of this entire, um, entire singular promise that's been handed down through the generations that comes through the Old Testament that we see finally culminate at the close of the Old Testament in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. But God didn't give them that heart until Revelation, until the middle of the tribulation, when they were so much under siege. I think think you're right. There's there's something there, but he does it before that. Um, He does it in... um, in the days of Christ's ministry, crucifixion, and resurrection. And um, we see that because that's the moment of conversion. And the way the, the epistles, the way the Apostle Paul will pick this up and characterize it is this is the day where now God's law is not written on tablets of stone, but written on what? The human heart. So Paul looks to the days of the crucifixion and the resurrection as the day of heart circumcision through Jesus's crucifixion and resurrection. Um, but what we see in Revelation is this... Um, hmm. Revelation is more about when the nation turns to God. The individuals during the time of Christ or after Christ could, be, could turn to a Jewish or Gentile. But they, when the nation, uh, the Lord has come back, and you've had the Battle of Armageddon, and uh, they have had to move from Jerusalem down to Basra. That's their safety mm-hmm. city. Is when when he says, "I will declare you, I will change your heart." Mm-hmm. It always makes me think: Did he just say all your sins are wiped out, all the stuff is past, and you're going to believe what you want to or not? Um, I don't think that's what he's, I don't think that's what he's arguing there. Um, and I say that because the way Jesus frequently characterizes those who are of the new covenant community is those who've come in by way of who? Him. 
Um, now, there are competing theories as to what that means right there, and the trouble you get into is it seems then like there are two different ways of salvation, which is hard to square with some of the rest of the New Testament. Um, but they're, they're interesting comments all the same. I'll say, I, I love that you brought that up, because what it does illustrate is that there is a, there is a people or a representative unit of a people um, in Revelation that the Lord says, um, these are the ones who've been blinded, but who now I will finally open their eyes to let them see. And to see what? To see his son. I think that's the idea. And we're going to see that specifically play out um, here in Isaiah. So let's go to Isaiah 55. We go to Isaiah um, because the new covenant was not first mentioned uh, when Jesus was up in the upper room with his disciples uh, sharing the Passover meal. It was first mentioned in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Isaiah 55 is where we're first going to see it. Um, But let me do this for you real quick. Um, Isaiah is broken down, just to to quickly give you like a a bare bones structure of Isaiah to understand what's happening here in chapter 55. It's broken down into three different sections. Chapters 1 to 39 are all about this king that the Lord's going to raise up. He's the one who's going to be born of a virgin, um, the one who's going to be called uh, Prince of Peace, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Um, the one who's going to be called the um, stump of Jesse, the one the New Testament writers look back to in quoting Isaiah saying, this is Jesus, this is him. So chapter 1 to 39 is this king. Chapters 40 to 54 is this servant. Have you heard the servant songs before in Isaiah? It's, It's this middle section, and this final section is about this anointed conqueror, chapter 55 here, and on to 66. But beginning in chapter 42, we hear of this servant that the Lord has chosen, upon whom the Spirit of the Lord rests, who is being given given as a covenant for the people and light to the nations that God's salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This servant is given a name, and he's given the name Israel. Now, go to... I told you to go to 55. Back up a little bit. Go to 49. Just first. Just kidding. Chapter 49. This is the second servant song. Chapter 49, starting in verse um, 3. He said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Now, in chapters... um, 40 to 54, this word servant is used in the singular like 23 times or something like that. And sometimes it refers to the people of Israel, but sometimes it refers to one individual person. And that's what we see in the servant songs. And we know that because both are captured here in this second servant song. He said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord. And my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant. And to what? Bring Jacob back to him. And that what? Or who? That Israel 
might be gathered to him, for I'm honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. You see that? Even in this one passage, there are two Israels named. Israel the people and Israel the person who was the sum of all their hope. You get to 55, or sorry, you get to 52 and 3. Those are the suffering servant passages. This servant is going to um, be crushed, be pierced for our transgressions. Our iniquities would be laid on him. Do you remember this? But by his wounds, we are going to be healed. We see that in 52 and 53. And it's on account of that servant's work that we get to this new declaration in chapter 55. This invitation that now the Lord is able to give to everyone on account of his servant's work. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear. Does this make you think of anything? Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast and sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God, and of the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. This is the first mention of a new covenant after the Davidic covenant. And it's characterized by the work of God's servant in the servant songs. A, a, a work that's an atoning work. A work that's a, a work of forgiveness. To finally restore right relationship between the Lord and His people because their sin has been done away with. And by done away with, I mean born away by this servant person who's also a king and who's also a conqueror. If you go to uh, Isaiah, mm, let's wait for that one. We'll wait for that one. Um, Go to Jeremiah 31. We'll read this one real quick. Jeremiah 31 verse 31. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a what? New covenant covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will what? Write it on their hearts 
This is the day of heart circumcision that Moses anticipated. This is the day of heart circumcision that Paul looks back on, saying the law is no longer written on tablets of stone, but by the Lord himself on the tablet of the human heart. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. I go to Ezekiel starting in 34. Verse 25. Ezekiel what? 34, verse 25. I got it mixed up like this. That's all right. It says, I will make with them a covenant of what? Peace. And banish wild beasts from the land. Pause. Isaiah 55, if we would have continued reading, we would have gotten to the place where the Lord says that he is establishing peace to the far, peace to the near. This is a covenant of peace. It's the same thing Paul's going to reflect back on in Ephesians 2, 17, when he's talking about peace between Jews and Gentiles. And he quotes that passage saying, peace to the far, peace to the near. This is a covenant of peace so that they will dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. Verse 27, the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. The earth shall yield its increase and they shall be secure in their land and they shall know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and deliver them from the hand of those who enslaved them. Verse 30, And they shall know that I am the Lord their God with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my what? Are my people, declares the Lord God. And you are my sheep, human sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Lord God. These are the the passages that initially set out in the Old Testament the new covenant. Okay, That's what everything else in the... The New Testament is going to look to, in addition to the rest of these passages we've looked at, as the beginning of God's telling of a day when he's going to do this new work. We see that? Um, If you go to 36, chapter 36, the Lord's saying he's going to, in verse 25, sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your what? Idols. Um, interestingly, the word there in the original is not idols. That's the sense you get from the context. Um, the word here is dung. You're um, like a, a pellet of dung. You'll. It, this is a, a a dramatic move Ezekiel makes as he's equating their idols to what dung. dung. I'm going to clean you from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new what? Heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone 
from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Pause right there. If, were you here this past Sunday? If you were here this past Sunday, you would have heard a worship song. Um, and I'm not going to sing it for you. Um, that would not go well. <clears throat> but I am going to try to remember the words to it. Um, there is a line in it that almost makes me start crying every time I hear it. Um, where in this song, he cries out, my heart needs a... Surgeon. You remember it? Surgeon. My heart needs a surgeon. My soul, this, a... my soul needs a friend. Yeah, this is where that comes from. My heart needs a surgeon. This is what Ezekiel saw. This is what Jeremiah saw. It's what Isaiah saw. It's what Jesus does. He is the heart surgeon. So through all these passages, we're going to flip back to um, Isaiah for a minute and sit in Isaiah. Because what Isaiah does is Isaiah depicts with all different sorts of uh, imagery what this new covenant day is going to look like. What it's going to look like when God's kingdom is consummated and we live for eternity with him as our God, us as his people. We're going to see a couple of things. Um, when we think about the, the characteristics of new covenant people. That is to say, when we think about the church and politics, specifically the church uh, or politics and the new covenant, we're thinking about how then we should live. What are the, the things that ought to govern our lives? The things we ought to be about? Isaiah is going to tell us. One of the first things that we see is a characteristic of a new covenant people is what? It's, it's number one on your sheet. That the people of the new covenant are commissioned with the servant's identity and mission. Think about that for a second. I told you from chapter 40 to 54, the term servant is used like 23 times. Always in the singular. But from chapter 44 in Isaiah on through the rest of Isaiah, it's only used in the plural. The servant has servants. And in the last part of Isaiah, they are doing the exact same thing that the servant is doing. Meaning what Isaiah envisions is these people, as this servant is multiplied, the seed of Eve, Abraham, David is multiplied they're doing the same thing that the seed is doing. Go to Isaiah 59. That's where we're going to see this initial commissioning. The Lord comes to the servant. And these are His words. He says, As for me, this is my covenant with them. So get the picture. The Lord is talking to the servant. And he's talking about who? His people. The Lord comes to the servant and says, this is the covenant I'm going to make with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you, servant, and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. So here again we see the servant has offspring. But that's not all the, ser- the, the um, servant's offspring have. What do they have? 
They have His Spirit and His what? Word. Dwelling in their mouth. And it will stay in their mouth for how long? Forever. This is the move that Isaiah makes in depicting the servants of the Lord. That's who? That's, that's even us in this room. It doesn't say just to your offspring, but also to your children's offspring. The idea here is this extends on forever. As long as you keep multiplying, my spirit's going to keep resting on them, and my word is going to remain in their mouth. So this promise is for us today. In fact, it was even written for us. The Lord tells um, Isaiah in chapter 38 that this prophecy was not written for the people of Israel in Isaiah's day. Why? Because they didn't have ears to hear. So the Lord tells Isaiah, write it down in a book because it's going to be for a future generation. We're included in that future generation. The Lord's telling us today that the spirit that he put upon his servant is upon you. The word that he put in his mouth is on you. And so as we think about what it means to live and operate as Christians in this world, as people of the new covenant, the first thing we have to know is the Lord has commissioned us with the identity and mission of Jesus. That should tell you that you have the confidence that you're not at it alone, but that the Lord is empowering you to do the very thing he's called you to do. Does that bring you comfort? Does that bring you any hope that this thing's doable? Right? The people of the new covenant are commissioned with the identity and mission of the servant. What's the second thing we're going to see? That the offspring of the servant or the, the people of God are anointed and empowered to proclaim the day of God's salvation and judgment. Um, flip, oh, well, um, yeah. Well, ver- chapter 60, verse 1. In light of this commissioning with the identity and mission, this is the, the command the Lord gives His people. Arise, Shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will raise up, arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Go to Isaiah 61. This is a famous chapter in Isaiah. It begins with this. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That is his salvation and the day of his vengeance. That is his judgment and to comfort all who mourn. Does that sound familiar to you? What what do you think of when you hear those words? You think of Jesus. Do you remember after his um, time in the wilderness, he comes back to Nazareth, he enters the synagogue, and he preaches his first sermon. Do you remember this moment? What does he do? He he takes the scroll of Isaiah, opens to where it is written here, 
reads this, hands it back to the attendant, sits down. Everyone is staring at him because traditionally what would happen is someone would read scripture and then give the sense of it, explain what it means to the people. But Jesus didn't explain it. He read it, handed it to the attendant, sat back down. Everyone's staring at him, waiting for his explanation. And do you remember his words? This has been fulfilled today in your what? Hearing. This has been fulfilled today. Who is Jesus saying that he is? Jesus is saying that he is the servant who is the Messiah. And his life was marked by doing these same things that Isaiah foretold he would do, right? Isaiah 35, he's healing the lame, opening the ears of the deaf, the eyes of the blind. 61, he's releasing the captives from their prison. How many years before that? Was Isaiah? Uh, 700, 700 ish. Been a hot minute. Been a hot, been a hot minute. <laughs> yeah. I hope Castro listens back to this but doesn't hear your distant voice over there and just hears me saying hot minute. Um, it's been a hot minute. It's been a while. And now they're seeing it fulfilled. Yeah, to be that precise. To be that precise. It's as if. The Lord himself wrote it, right? Right? It's that, I love the word, it's that precise. Now, what's so interesting is that from Isaiah 54 on through the rest of Isaiah, remember, it's not just the servant who's depicted doing these things. Who else is doing them with him? His servants, his people, his church, whatever name you want to put to it, it's this. It's those who trust in his servant and have been redeemed by him. They're doing the same things. So think for a moment. How does that change the way you live, the way you think about your life, the way you think about how you prioritize your, your time, your days, um, your decisions, your resources, knowing you were put on this earth for a purpose. And it's to be redeemed by this servant and worship the Lord for it, but then to do the very same things that he did. Is anyone convicted by that this, this evening? Um, I'll offer up, but even before all of you, that, that is convicting. Because that tells us if we want to answer the question, how then should we live We ought to look to the things that even Isaiah foretold we should be doing and say, man, these are the things that should characterize our life. In Isaiah 58, he's going to describe it this way, pouring yourselves out for the afflicted, feeding the hungry, announcing the news of God's salvation to all you encounter, remembering the spirit of the Lord is upon you and his words in your mouth. That's why even Jesus was able to tell the disciples, don't worry about what to say when they drag you before kings and courts because my Holy Spirit's going to speak through you and will give you the words in the moment. You, we could read through the rest of 61 and see the rest that, that the Lord says is going to take place. Um, in verse uh, 6, they're called priests of the Lord. We are called priests of the Lord. 
spoken of as ministers, that's worshipers of our God. Concerned with justice. Third, another characteristic of the new covenant people uh, is that they are mobilized for a what? Mobilized for a global mission. Let's do this. Go to, uh, actually, just so you can see how this takes place in the New Testament first, go to Luke 24. Luke 24, starting in verse 44. This is after Jesus' crucifixion, after the resurrection. Jesus has already appeared to his disciples on the road to Emmaus. He left them. Now he's appearing to his larger group of disciples. And starting in verse 44, this is what he says. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in, what's that first one? In the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. That's the writings. That's not just Psalms, but that's all the wisdom literature and all the the writings. Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Pause. Jesus is saying the New Testament isn't what first declares to you news of the Christ's sufferings and subsequent glory. That's the message of what? That's the message of the Old Testament. The law, the prophets, the Psalms. But then he adds one more. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all what? Nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Jesus is teaching his disciples here how to read the Old Testament. And he's telling them the message of the the Old Testament is that the Christ is going to suffer. But that the Christ is going to be raised from the dead. And that all of those who follow him are going to proclaim repentance for the forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. That's not a great commission moment on the Mount of whatever in Galilee, when Jesus tells his disciples to make disciples of all nations. This was foretold all the way back in the Old Testament, that his followers were going to proclaim repentance for the forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations. We see that in Isaiah. Go to Isaiah 66. Starting in verse 18. Isaiah 66, verse 18. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. And I will set a sign among them, And from them I will what? Send Send survivors to the nations 
to Tarshish, Pul, and Lud, to draw the bow, to Tabal and to Javan, to the coastlands. Isaiah is littered with this term coastlands. It's representative of the ends of the earth. And throughout the servant songs, it's the coastlands that await his law, the coastlands that one day will rejoice. Here the Lord is sending his people to the coastlands, to the lands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall what? And they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules. And you get the idea here? It's as if they are pouring in because God's people have been sent out to go get them. They're coming to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord. Just as the Israelites bring their grain offering and a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them also I'll take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new, the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And what's the means by which he's going to draw him? His people that he sends out to declare his glory among the nations. You see that? Is this a depiction of... The thousand year reign, the millennial kingdom, when will redeem those from Israel that he has predestined in the end, the day when they're not hearing now, but that he'll make them hear then. Um, but in terms of a, a people for his possession, it's one people, not two. That's what Paul says in Ephesians, as he's talking about the Jew and the Gentile being made one. Um, just as the Lord came to preach peace to the far, peace to the near. So there, there are there are a lot who take that position. It's, it's a debated topic in the world of theology. Um, I think, a, a, I think a, at least a more fundamental way to phrase it, regardless of where you land on that side of the argument, is you can say ultimately what's in view here is they're being brought in, and this is the, the depiction of the, um, God's final reign and rule, but they weren't sent out on that day when were they sent out? They were sent out beforehand because they had to go get them. I think the day they were sent out was Pentecost. That's the day. So we're in the days where they're going out to get the people, to bring them back to the Lord. That's now. You see that? We are a people who are mobilized for a global mission. So do you think these last few verses in Isaiah are like beginning to end basically like the... The going out, you know, and then for the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you see not just salvation, but now you see judgment. That's what we await now is the judgment, the, the mark of the end, right? This is, this is judgment. They shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have what? Rebelled against me. Pause right there. 
um, that is the depiction of the people in the Old Testament. Um, after the gospel goes to the Gentiles, that's the depiction of um, those Gentiles who do not respond positively to the gospel. It's one of rebellion. But praise the Lord that he is one who loves rebels and has chased them down. Because each and every one of us were rebels that the Lord saved. Their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Not a pretty picture. (laughs) You see that? But before that day comes, the Lord has sent out His people to get them. Uh, Jesus will say it this way, I have sheep who are not of this, what? Fold. Go get them. That's the idea. Uh, here's, here's the thing I want us to... What time are we supposed to end today? 7.30? All right. Well, let's end on this note. Though there's more there you could see. Let's end on this note. Uh, the Apostle Paul persecuting Christians um, on his way up to Damascus to arrest, drag them back to Jerusalem um, and kill them. <clears throat> he is met by the risen Lord Jesus. You remember this moment. Blinded by the brilliance of Christ's glory. And Jesus tells him in that moment, go, for you are my instrument to take news of my salvation to the who? Gentiles. Paul recounts that story in Acts 9, in Acts 26, in Galatians 1, I think maybe one other place. In each place, he explains, Jesus told me, go, I am sending you away to the Gentiles. But in Acts 13, after he and Barnabas are sent out by the church in Antioch of, um, to a different Antioch, Antioch of Pisidia, which is in modern-day Turkey, they're sent out, they're preaching in the synagogue, and the Jews start reviling them, and they're put on the spot to defend their ministry to the Gentiles before all the Jews. If that's you, what do you say? If you're like me, you probably say something to the effect of, Jesus himself told me to do this. Every other time he explains his conversion story, he says, Jesus told me to go to the Gentiles. I'm sending you to the Gentiles to take news of salvation to them. But in the moment, in Antioch of Pisidia, that's not what Paul does. Paul doesn't say, Jesus told me to go to the Gentiles. Uh, Go to Acts 13.47. This is the last verse we'll read, I promise. Acts 13, 47. Starting in verse 46, I'm going to add one more. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside... And judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the who? Gentiles. The Gentiles. Verse 47. For so the Lord has commanded us, that's he and Barnabas, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Does that sound familiar? It should, because we just read it in Isaiah 49. What Paul does here is, quote, Isaiah 49.6. When he's pushed to defend his ministry to the Gentiles, he doesn't say, 
Jesus told me on the road to Damascus to go to the Gentiles, he says, this is the news of the Old Testament. He puts himself directly in the middle of the second servant song, taking up Jesus' identity and mission, and says, the Lord commanded us, as me and Barnabas, I've made you a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Paul's basis for his ministry to the Gentiles was the Old Testament. Tonight, as we've talked about the, uh, the New Covenant, specifically what it means to live as people of the New Covenant, what we see in the testimony of Jesus, Paul, the Old Testament itself, is that those characterized um, in the New Covenant passages as people of the New Covenant are those who are commissioned with the identity and mission of the servant, those who are anointed and empowered for the task to proclaim news of his salvation and judgment, those are the ones who are mobilized for a global mission. That's you and I. So let's pray tonight and ask the Lord to help us be new covenant people and further be characterized by these things. Father, we do thank you for tonight. And Father, we do pray that you would increasingly help us to grow. Father, we beg that you would help us to do that. Um, Father, we may continue to grow in our understanding of who you are, what you're like, how much you love us. Father, you'd grow our affections for your son. But Father, we also pray that you would grow our understanding of what it is that you have purposed us for. Father, would you help us to declare your glory among all of those we encounter here in this community, but also around the world, that they may likewise worship you, the only God who is worthy of worship. We pray all of this knowing, God, that we can't do it. We admit that to you, but God, we know that's why you sent your spirit and why you've given us your word, Father, to equip us for this ministry. And so, Father, we pray that you would do that in increasing measure in each of our lives. I thank you for my friends in this room. And collectively, God, as a church, we pray you'd continue to grow our hearts together closer to one another. Father, as we are conformed into people who look more and more like your son, commissioned with his identity and mission to declare your glory among the nations. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Lesson 6, Politics of the New Covenant in the Church and Politics class. If you're interested in more information about Central Church, you can check us out at centralchurch.com and learn more about our ministries in our classes. And we'll hope to see you back.